I'd like to, oh yeah, the good morning wasn't amplified, huh? I'd like to talk to you today about two things, God and then um, this song, Come and Stand Amazed. Um, I'd like to talk to you about God in a way that you may not be familiar with, and then I'd like to talk about this song, this Christmas song, Come and Stand Amazed, that you are probably for sure not familiar with it. Uh, maybe 10 people in the room have heard this Christmas song, Come and Stand Amazed. Um, very, very, very rare, so it's not like joy to the world. So most of you, this will be a new song, but I want to teach it to you because it's probably one of the greatest Christmas songs you've never heard. And we're going to sing it at the end of the sermon together. We'll be singing it on Christmas Eve. And we may, I don't know, I haven't talked to Drew about this, but maybe just like make it permanent like throughout the year. It's, it's kind of, it's annoying that when, when songs that are good, if they talk about the birth of Jesus, then that, well, that's a Christmas song. That, and that's for December. And then like songs about Jesus' death, or well, that's, that's Easter, but you could sing those throughout the year because they're about his death or resurrection. But if it's about his birth, well, that's just for December. So, I don't know, Drew, we may have to make, put this in the rotation. Is it not one of the top five worship songs that we play. He's shaking his head. He's enthusiastic. So I want to talk to you about two things, God in a way that you might not be familiar with and a song that you're for sure not familiar with. We're in a little mini series, a little mini Christmas series going through some of the great Christmas songs. And so last week we did Joy to the World. This week we'll do this song, Come and Stand Amazed. Uh, And next week we'll do Jingle Bells. (laughs) That's not true. When we talk, we'll do probably Hark the Herald Angels Sing. There's a couple paragraphs in there that are really good. When we talk about God, at least in, Christmas, in the Christmas season, we usually talk about God coming to earth as, as baby Jesus. And this is called the incarnation in theological terms. Uh, and maybe one of the verses that best illustrates this concept of incarnation, God coming to earth, is Philippians 2.5. Speaking of Jesus, it says... Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So the verse is saying that Jesus, who is God, didn't cling to his godness, or what you'd call the the Godhead. He didn't say, I'm God, I'm going to stay up here safe in heaven and cling to this, but rather, he empties himself and comes to earth in the incarnation as baby Jesus. And so it's this image sort of, of of God who is up in the heavens in perfection coming down to earth. And he's on a mission so that those who are in pain and misery and sin and death here on earth can then be elevated, not necessarily to godhood, but to heaven as an adopted son or daughter. But in order to understand this idea of God being here and then emptying himself, we need to reflect on God. And so what I'd like us to do is think about God, but not just in the way that we normally do, but God in his attributes. What is God like? What is, what's his nature? characteristics, attributes. We can go on and on for this for days and days because there's so many, but I'd like to talk about a few in particular. These are some pretty crazy 
weird-sounding words that some of you might have heard of, but you all know what they mean by the end of the day. Omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence. These are, these are some of the attributes of God. I'd like to first talk about omniscience. Anyone know what that means? All-knowing. God knows everything. Have you ever stopped, really, to reflect and think about that? Because, like, it's so easy to think about, oh, God is so all-powerful, he can do anything, he knows everything. No, like, like, stop for a second. God knows everything. So it's like, he knows all the stars, not just, like, how many, but he knows them intimately, all the planets. He knows how many grains of sand there are on earth, how many blades of grass, or how many blades of grass are on your front lawn. But more than that, he knows exactly what a randomly selected blade of grass on your front lawn is composed of. He knows what it's composed of down, like, on the molecular level. How many, does this, how many of these subatomic particles compose the piece of grass? He knows how many oxygen molecules are in this room right now. Think about that. But he not only knows how many oxygen molecules are in this room, he knows how many oxygen molecules are in every room that ever was or is or will be. He knows how many oxygen molecules will be in a room that has yet to exist. He knows every letter in every book that's been written. He knows the entire coding of DNA in every single human being who has lived, is living, or is going to live. He knows the answer to every mathematical question that's ever been asked. He knows the answer to every possible mathematical question that can be asked because there's questions in math that have not been asked And there's questions with math that will never be asked by a human, but God knows every single one of them and knows the answer to every single one of them. What's even more crazy than than that is that he knows all things simultaneously. So he doesn't move like us from one thought to another. So picture it like this. Put your, like, if you put your hand, you don't have to do this. Some of you may want to, but like put your hand in front of your face. You don't have to think like, oh, there's a hand in front of my face. It's like you almost know it intuitively. It's, it's directly observed. You don't have to think that thought. God knows all things, all possible things that are knowable simultaneously in an, in an eternal now. Because God is also something called immutable. He can't change. And to move from one thought to another involves change. For example, if we had, uh, we'll call this point A on the stage and this point B on the stage, and if I were to walk from point A to point B, there would be movement, but in order for movement to be allowed, something is demanded, right? Time has to transpire for movement to occur. I have to move from point A to point B. If there was no time and I were to pretend that I could be at point A and point B at the same time, I would also have to exist at every possible point between point A and point B, which gets on something called omnipresence, which we'll touch in in a moment. But God doesn't go from one thought to another. He knows all possible things simultaneously. And because he's something called eternal and outside of time, he's known them from all eternity. So I'm like, you think about like God knowing everything, you gotta like, you know, stop and slow down. He knows all possible things 
and he's known them eternally before time began because he's outside of time. He's also omnipotent. He can do anything. You know, usually we mean that, we talk about God being all-powerful, like when we have a certain trial or trouble, like, like say we can't get a job. We know our resume's bad. Well, God can do anything. It's like with that resume, you better hope he can do anything, you know? <laughs> like, no, he's all, he spoke creation into existence. Like God spoke the cosmos into being. And what modern science has taught us is the universe is far grander and more complex than any of us could ever imagine. It's also taught us that the universe is, is smaller in a sense. So like you can keep going smaller and smaller and smaller and you discover more complexities. Things don't get simpler. I mean, it used to be just a couple hundred years ago that people thought you could find like the base level of creation. It's an atom and it's going to be simple and it's going to be easy to understand and everything else is built upon that. But then as we progress, we know that no, atoms aren't simple. We, we don't even understand them. They're popping like, uh, they appear to be popping in and out of existence. And underneath them, there's, there's quarks, and underneath there's more subatomic particles, and so on, and so on, and so on. God like spoke it all into existence. It's crazy. Then also the creative mind that can make things like music and color. Just, I mean, think about color alone and, and how our senses perceive color. I mean, sound alone is incredible. Music is incredible. We talked a little bit about this yesterday, but like every object vibrates at, at a certain frequency. So I hit that and it makes a noise. But just in order for that to transpire, there's like this complex equation and vibrations going in the air that go into my ear. And inside my ear, there's this little watery filled sac called a cochlea that's filled with hair-like fibers that pick up that vibration and then translate that into an electrical impulse and through neurotransmitters, take it to your brain just so you could perceive sound. There's just a noise. All of that is happening to all of you. God spoke all of it into existence. That's all powerful. Omnipresence, God is everywhere. He doesn't have to go from one place to another. Why? Because that would mean he would, he would be bound by time. In order to move from point A to point B, that necessitates some type of time in some sense. So when it says God is everywhere, he's always everywhere all of the time. But even more mysterious than that, Somehow God is everywhere all of the time, but he's not tainted by the corruption of a fallen creation. So for instance, um, if God is everywhere, and the Bible talks about him being in all and through all, well, when, a, when someone is doing something sinful, how is God not in that or a part of it if he's truly everywhere at the same time? There's like a mystery, a paradox to that. But there's a way we can understand it although all illustrations fail us in one sense or another. But think about, like, this is a bad example. It's a good example, but it's a, you'll see why it's bad. I need you to picture, if you have a front lawn, some of, you, some of you don't, but picture you have a front lawn, and, you know, there's just one of those people in your neighborhood, they always walk their dog. And, you, know, you know what I'm talking about? And the dog, you know, drops a turd on your lawn. And, you know... You've seen this guy out your window. He looks around real quick, makes sure no one's looking, and then he keeps walking. You know, some of you do that, probably, in a room this big. You know? I know how you are. You're not laughing right now. 
to the turd on your lawn. So what's interesting about the turd on your lawn is that the sun is actually interacting with that turd on your lawn. Sun's a great big giant ball of fire, but it's sending photons at the speed of light all the way down here to Earth. It takes about eight minutes, give or take eight minutes and 20 seconds for the photons from the sun to reach that turd. Now the photons, you ever thought you'd hear about this on a Sunday morning, photons and a turd? The photons that are sent from that sun, it took eight minutes and 20 seconds to get there, they actually interact with that turd and they have the ability to unfortunately heat that turd up. However, the photons are not tainted. It's not like, oh, the light now has turd on it or it smells. Huh. It, it's, 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 it's different. So it can interact with the turd, but it is not tainted by the turd in any possible way. This is philosophy 101. <laughs> So God is immaterial. He's not physical, so I can't point to him. I can't point to him like a person in this room because we're physical, we're material. That's our reality. God is immaterial, but it doesn't mean because he's immaterial, he is not present. Just like the photons aren't, you know, you can't like grab it, but they're there and they're actually interacting, but they're untainted. God is in all and through all but undamaged or untainted by the brokenness and sinfulness of this world. He's immaterial, so you can't see him, but it doesn't mean he's not present. In fact, he's everywhere. We get to stop and reflect on this. He knows all things. He is all-powerful, and he is ever-present. He's here right now. You can't escape his presence. The Bible says, even if you make your bed in hell... God will still find you. He's everywhere. Now, we mentioned this briefly, but he's immutable. That's a theological term that means he can't change. God sits outside of time, sits outside of space. He's the author of space and time. And because of that, for all eternity, he's known all things and has decreed action for all Eternity. He's unchanging. Can't be changed. You can't catch him off guard. He's also the ground of all things or the grounds for all things. He is absolute pure being. He is the only being in existence that cannot not exist. It is impossible for him to not exist. All things, you me, down to a skyscraper, down to subatomic particles, are presently dependent upon him. The very reason why there is not chaos right now, that there's order, is because God himself is currently willing there to be order and not chaos. All things are built upon his being. Or another way to think about it, or the best way to think about it is when your kid, you have a kid and they get to about age, depending upon how smart your kid is, three, four, five, 27, um, they ask you a question like, well, if I came from mommy and daddy, where did mommy and daddy come from? And then you say, well, they're mommy and daddy, right? And then the smart kid asks, where did they come from? They're mommy and daddy. Then they keep going forever, right? Because kids at a certain age, they just ask questions forever and ever and ever and ever. And then you finally make it all the way back to Adam and Eve. And the smart kid goes, 
Who made Adam and Eve? God. And the really smart kid goes, yeah, who made God? And then, you know, that's where you either have a good answer or you go, it's not night time. It's not night time. Mom, I'm 27. It's 4.30 p.m. Here's some NyQuil. It's not night time. This has to do with what philosophers called God being the uncaused cause or unmoved mover. So everything that comes into existence, everything that comes to be has to have a cause. It's the law of causality. Everything that comes to be has to have a cause. Or think of, think of a table here and there's a bunch of dominoes set up. And I knock one domino down and that knocks the other domino and it knocks the other domino and it knocks the other domino and someone observes at the end of the table the last domino fell. Every domino that fell had to have something hit it to push it down. So just like the kids question, who, where did mommy and daddy come from? Where did they come from? Where did they come from? The question is, well, what knocked that domino down? What knocked that domino down? What knocked that domino down? Ultimately, there has to be something or somebody that is outside the line of dominoes that has to set things in motion. And whatever that thing is that's outside of the table has to be eternal and outside of time. How do you know it has to be eternal and outside of time? Because if you have an infinite number of dominoes that are falling over on top of each other, you'd never be able to observe the last domino falling over. Why? Because you can't traverse an infinite line of dominoes. You would never reach the end. You know what I mean? So think about it like, there's a domino before that, a domino before that, and a domino before that, and that goes on for eternity. You'd never get to today. So how do you know time had a beginning? Because you're here today. Because an infinite number of yesterdays could not have occurred. An infinite number of yesterdays would be impossible. You'd never reach today. So there has to be this uncaused cause or unmoved mover. That's the term they use in philosophy. And whatever that uncaused unmover, uncaused cause, unmoved mover is, it also is presently sustaining all of reality. Think of it this way. Picture an orchestra showing up one day. A hundred person orchestra. They all have instruments to play. They all, they all are great musicians. But there's no sheet music and there's no conductor. And on the count of three, they're just going to randomly pick something to play, and it's all got to be ordered perfectly. It's like one, two, three. Now, unless they conspired beforehand, even though they're all great musicians, it's not just going to magically work itself out. Now, we're just talking about 100 musicians. But I mean, like, you got to understand something here. Like, your body alone is crazy complex. Every two to three seconds, your body is pumping out, just from bone marrow, hundreds of, uh, millions of red blood cells. In a drop of blood, there's roughly five million red blood cells. And we're just talking red blood cells. And every two to three seconds, your body is just producing this stuff. And they all know what to do. They all have been programmed. They know what to do. It's like, if you get really weird, you start thinking about, like, how does, how does my hand, like, this is, weird, this, is, this is more weird than the turd, but... Like, how does my hand even hold together? Like, there's, there's like, glue, like, the, the, it knows what to do. And then you start, you start thinking that, you realize that your hand is more empty space than physical space. 
You guys, you guys know that like everything is pretty much more empty space than physical space. Like it's not like there's a little building box like atoms. There's big old giant electrons cir- circling things. It's, it's space. But yet how things hold together. I'm not, and, and think about it past just the human body. Think about the universe and all of its complexities is just doing what it's doing. It's been doing it for a long time and there's order and not chaos. Why? Well, if, if, if you don't believe in God, you would say, well, because there's a bunch of laws in nature that keep them doing for that way. And I just ask the, the question, laws demand a law giver. So why is the universe presently ordered and not pure chaos? The Bible's answer would be because there's someone who holds all things together. So there's this being called God. He knows all things. He's all powerful. He's ever present. He's immutable. He doesn't change. He's the grounds for all things. He's the uncaused cause, the unmoved mover. And on top of that, if you're a Christian, you also believe he's always good and always beautiful. Why? This will have to do with something that we say over and over again that is prob- it's wrong, but I get the sentiment. Because there are some things that God cannot do. Remember you're told God can do anything? There are some things God cannot do. God cannot change, so he will never act in a way that is contrary to his nature. So if God is good and he cannot change, he will always do good all of the time because it's impossible for him to not act in accordance with his own nature. Or if that doesn't make any sense and the theology and philosophy is too crazy, you could sum it up like this. God is good when? All of the time. Because he cannot change and his nature is good, it is impossible for him to do wrong. It is impossible for him to lie. It's it's impossible for him to commit evil. And you don't have to worry if he's ever going to change his mind about what he's declared because it's impossible for him to change. So he's good and beautiful. Now, that's God. Briefly, and we can talk like this for days. That's God. That God, according to the Christian story, came to earth as a baby. That's nuts. That's crazy. And when you kind of put all of that stuff in perspective... It transitions to these beautiful lyrics of the Christmas song you've never heard of. When you realize that that God left the throne to become a baby, your response is what? Come and stand amazed, you people. Is there any other response but to stand in amazement of that type of God? Because by the way, the philosophers going back two to three thousand thousands of years conceived of a God like that. The unmoved moves, uncaused cause, that, that stuff goes back to, to the Greek philosophers, Plato, Aristotle. That stuff's old. But the claim that that God would come to earth as a human, well, that's an absurdity that the Christian story injects. Come and stand amazed, you people. See how God is reconciled. See his plans of love accomplished, see his gift, this newborn child. 
This song nails everything we're talking about right here. This is beautiful. See the mighty, weak, and tender. See the word who now is mute. See the sovereign without splendor. See the fullness destitute. Now go back to those arrows. You see what's going on. It's, it's God who is here, going here, in order that we who are here down low can be lifted up. And so the poetry is, is working in this, this flow. So there's the mighty one who is made weak and tender. Now at Christmas we talk about the baby, the incarnation, being weak and tender. Now think about how awesome God is and all those attributes, omniscience, omnipotence, he's ever present, all of those things, unmoved, moved, uncaused, cause. And then when he comes to earth, how does he come? He comes in the most like vulnerable of ways. Could, could you get any more vulnerable than a baby. And let's think about this for a second. Let's not just think of like cute little baby when he's three months old. Like how many babies die before mother is even aware she's pregnant? How many babies in the ancient world don't reach term? How many babies in the ancient world don't even reach the age of two? This is crazy vulnerable. You know how vulnerable little babies are? If you're a parent, you know this. You know it when you had your first child, right? Like, my first kid, I, I thought everything I was going to do was going to kill it. Like, the baby comes out, and baby starts to breastfeed. And they smash their face up against mom, but then you're like, can they breathe? And God put little devices in there so their nose don't break, but they, they could still breathe. Dads, do any of you remember for your first child, most of this stuff goes away by the third. But do you remember checking on the first child to see if they're still breathing in the middle of the night? Do you remember that? Yeah, by the third or fourth kid, you know, they're coughing. And you're like, glad to know they're breathing. But you, because you know how fragile they are. Or do, you, or do you remember holding your baby when they have 105 temperature and praying, dear God, just please let my baby be okay. Let the fever go down. You know, you, you spend the whole night up with them because you know how fragile they are. You know how fragile life is. When the almighty, omnipotent, omniscient one decides to go public with his glory, he comes as a baby. And you can picture like a little hand. So fragile. See the mighty who is now weak and tender. See the word who now is mute. When the New Testament uses the word word, it uses the Greek term logos or logos. The beginning of the Gospel of John says, in the beginning was the word, the logos. The Logos was with God. The Logos was God. The Greek philosophers were okay with that thought, by the way. They, they had conceived of, 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 of that. The issue was that Christians said, then the Logos, the word, becomes flesh. And that was the scandal. It's like Logos. The, the Greek philosophers thought of Logos as like, the thing that gives all things order and reason. It enables language. It enables logic. 
they thought of it as there's the sun, which is God, but then there's the heat that comes from the sun. That's logos. It's the thing that the part of God that we get to interact with, the reason and logic and ration. So the word in Christianity doesn't necessarily contradict that, but logos in Christianity goes a step further and says the word becomes flesh. But when the word becomes flesh in the Christian story, the word, this is the beautiful poetry, is mute. Why? Because babies can't speak a language. They have to learn it. The all-knowing one who has known all things for all eternity now is a baby who cannot formulate a sentence. This is a Christian story. No one else is saying this stuff. See, the sovereign one without splendor. See, the one who has the fullness destitute. A naked baby. It's rare that we reflect on this, and it's kind of humorous, but I mean, th- babies can't even go to the bathroom appropriately. They like, just poop all over themselves for, depending on how smart your child is, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight years. <laughs> this is how God comes. He's 100% dependent upon his mother for food and nourishment and even cleaning up his poop. This is what God has done. See how humankind received him. The song goes on. See him wrapped in swaddling bands who is Lord of all creation, rules the wind by his commands. How does humankind receive him on Christmas? They don't. That's the story of Christmas. Mary and Joseph, they don't have a place to stay. There's no room in the end. They have to go kick it with the animals. We mentioned this yesterday, but this is the story of Jesus' his entire life. There's no room for him on Christmas, and as he grows older, there's no room for him in the house because everyone thinks he's crazy in his family except his mom. We don't really know what Joseph thinks. He's not mentioned. The people in his town, they... They take him outside of the synagogue as he's teaching and try to stone him, Luke chapter 4. Then his people as a whole, at the end of his life, kick him out of the city to crucify him. There's never any room for Jesus. So how does humankind receive him? We don't. The omnipotent one comes as the vulnerable baby, the vulnerable baby and we reject him. He rules the wind by his commands, kind of going back to the awesomeness of creation. But like, God spoke the cosmos into being, and he rules creation. I mean, think about the, think about the power of nature. We haven't had a big one in a long time, thank God. But like, think about a massive earthquake. That is nuts. The ground just shakes violently. Think about a hurricane or a tsunami. Think about a nuclear bomb. Nuclear bomb, we think of it as as an invention of man, yes, but it's merely harnessing the energy that is already there. Like that. This is harnessing the energy that's already there. God rules nature with his commands. 
But, the song says, see him lying in a manger without sign of reasoning. Logos, again, word of God, to flesh surrendered, he is wisdom's crown our king. See, when the Christians were going around saying that God came to earth and was crucified and rose from the dead, it wasn't like people back then just believed stupid things. That's, that's something that modern people like to tell ourselves. We're so smart. Now we know that dead people don't come back from the dead. Uh, dead people don't rise from the dead. Everyone believed that back then. When the Christians were going around saying that God became a human being, was crucified and rose on the third day, they knew what they were saying, even in that pre-modern culture, was absolute nonsense. They, they said openly, this is foolishness to the world. But in the plans of God, it is wisdom. It's foolishness to a world that is perishing, but for those who know and believe, this is wisdom. And this song beautifully illustrates that by the last line, Jesus is wisdom's crown. Jesus is our king. He's the one who accomplishes the wise plans of the Father. It goes on, O Lord Jesus, God incarnate, who assumed this humble form, counsel me and let my wishes to your perfect will conform. There's that word incarnate again. Again, if you don't know what it means, it's just a fancy word for this idea that God becomes a human being. Um, It's hard in English, the word doesn't kind of communicate that, but in Spanish it works a lot better. I've mentioned this before, incarnation in Spanish is encarnacion, also the love interest in one of the greatest movies of all time, Nacho Libre and Encarnacion. Um, but what is, inca- what, do, do you hear it in Spanish? En carne, in meat. So in Spanish, it doesn't sound like a theological word. It's like, oh, in meat, in flesh. The incarnation is when God puts on human flesh, simple as that. But we don't have that equivalent in English, so incarnation just sounds, sounds like a flower or like something. <laughs> incarnation, in flesh, in meat. Oh, Lord Jesus, the logos the omnipotent one, the omniscient one, the omnipresent one has put himself in human flesh and he takes upon this humble form. And this last line, so good. Counsel me and let my wishes to your perfect will conform. So it's this idea that I want to give up my wants and my desires because I want my wants and desires to conform to the wants and desires that God has for me. Do you pray like that? Is it like when you pray, is it, Lord, I want this, I need this, I want this, or is it, Lord, conform my desires and wants to your will? I don't want to pray for things that I want if they're not what you want for me. Conform my will to your will. Or as Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done. The last section of the songs, song, light of life, dispel my darkness, let your frailty strengthen me, let your meekness give me boldness, let your burden set me free. Think of those arrows again. It's this up and down type of, type of thing. It's the light of life. Jesus is going to dispel your darkness. Through his frailty, through his coming down as a baby, you are going to be strengthened through his meekness, him coming down, you will be given boldness. 
and by him taking upon burdens, you will be set free. It's like the great exchange. And the song ends with the plea, O Emmanuel, my Savior, let your death be life for me. Emmanuel is a Hebrew term. Emmanuel means God with us. So it's Jesus, the incarnate one, my God with us. My Savior, let your death be life for me. This brings us all the way back to where we began. Philippians, where it talks about God taking human form. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So visualize that. God, just as we described him, then he comes down in the likeness of men, becomes a human. Then it doesn't say, he just stays that, he goes even further. He becomes a servant. So king of kings, human being, servant. Word for servant in the Greek here is doulos. It also means slave. Logos, omnipotent, immutable, human, doulos. But then Philippians actually goes even further than that. Here's the, here's the verse in context. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, verse 8 is how it goes further, and being found in human form, he then went lower. He humbled himself further by becoming obedient to the point of death. But then he goes even further than just death. It says, even death on a cross. Crucifixions were so horrific that shortly after this time period in Latin, you weren't even allowed to say the word cruz, cross, in public because it is just triggered the most horrific type of imagery because it was the most cursed, agonizing, miserable way to die. I mean, the Romans, they, they perfected torture. And this was the worst they came up with. And so what is the image? It's God, likeness of men, lower, but no, he goes further than just becoming one of us. He becomes a servant, a doulos, but he goes even further than that because he, he goes to die, but he goes even further than that because he doesn't just come to die. He comes to die on a cross. So it's, it's like the descent of God. That's what Christmas is talking about. That's what incarnation is about. But then, God the Father doesn't just leave the Son there, the verse goes on, and now the exaltation. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's this lowering, but then an exaltation. But as Jesus is exalted, the Christian story is that he just doesn't go up there to be alone by himself again. It's that he takes those who were in bondage and sin and gives them new life. Ephesians has this weird verse where it talks about like currently, presently. Presently, you're already seated in heavenly places. It's like the future outcome is so true that the present present reflects that. Okay, so... When we talk about Christmas, when we talk about incarnation, this is what we mean. Don't, like, no, don't think no longer like, oh yeah, God's super strong, and then he came as a baby. No, reflect on that, 
on, on the greatness of what it means to be God and then reflect on what it means to be a baby incapable of speaking, of providing nourishment for yourself. There can be no two greater further polar opposites than that. And when you understand all of that stuff or begin to just understand it, the title of the song rings all the more true. Come and stand amazed, you people. See what God has done. See how God has reconciled. He's reconciled us through this plan. Now, one last crazy thing about God. So he knows all the stars, all of them. He knows all the planets. He knows every square inch of the furthest planet in the universe. Every square inch of it, he knows it intimately. He knows how many oxygen molecules are in this room, how many grains of sand there are on every single beach that was or is, will be. But probably more important than all of that, he knows the number of hairs on your head. And probably even more important than that, God knows your name. And even more important than that, God has known you for all eternity. In his foreknowledge, outside of time, eternally, God has known everything about you. He foreknew you. He knew all the specific little quirks of your personality. He knew the way you would smile. He knows all your faults and failures. He knows every single thought you would ever have before you even came to be. He intimately is aware of all your faults and failures. And before the foundations of this earth, before time came to be, he said, I'm going to love this one. Before you came to be, before time came to be, God knew you and said, I'm going to love this one. I'm going to save this one. And then you reflect on that God who knows all things, who is all-powerful, who is ever-present. That's to change the way you live. Or maybe a better way to say it is, friends, do you know who you belong to? Do you know who your father is? Do you know how powerful your father is? Do you know how loving your father is? Do you know that your father is good all of the time? And it's impossible for him to not be good and beautiful all of the time. Do you know who you belong to? Do you know what Christmas is all about? It's about that God loving you so much that he comes into our world, takes upon the human condition upon his back, goes to a cross and dies. Man, if you know who you belong to, you know who your dad is, you just walk differently. You go, whatever issues I have, whatever problems I have, whatever it is that's going on in my life, you tell yourself, I know who my dad is. I know who my father is. It's the all-powerful one, the almighty one, the one who knows every grain of sand, but he also knows the hair on my head, and he's known my name before I came into, into being. That should make you walk differently. This Christmas, and for this song, as we enter into communion, all I want us to do is to reflect on that. Who God is, what he did, and what does that make us as his children? 
And this song, hopefully, will produce a sense of, uh, of reflection, but more importantly, we just wouldn't learn a new song, but that we would truly stand amazed of what God has done. We would say, come and stand amazed, see how God is reconciled, see his plans of love accomplished, see his gift, this newborn child. We take communion, if, if, if you're not a Christian, you're just checking this Jesus thing in church out, you don't have to take communion, don't worry about it, just, just let it pass. Communion is a thing that Christians take in order to remember the story of Jesus, what he did, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. As we take this, and again, I know sometimes we can... For some people, you love philosophy, you love theology. For some stuff, it's not your thing. But today, right now, reflect on the unmoved mover, the perfect one, the omnipotent one, allowing his body to be broken on your behalf. His body is broken on your behalf. And the one who is omnipresent, who's been here for eternity, allows his blood to be spilt on your behalf. Friends, this is the story of Christmas, the incarnation. Come and stand amazed, you people. See how God has reconciled the world through his body and his blood. The logos, the logos, has died on a cross. Why? Because before the foundations of the world were ever laid, he foreknew you and he loved you. As we take communion, please stand. On the night that the omnipotent one was betrayed, he said, take this bread. It stands in place of my body. Take it and remember what I've done. And on the night the omniscient one was betrayed, he took a cup and he said, when you drink this, You're not only doing it to remember me, but you're declaring allegiance that you will proclaim my death and resurrection until I return. So when we take this, it's a re-pledging of allegiance that we will be faithful until Jesus returns. Father God, um, I pray that every single person in this room would have a sense of awe and amazement about who you are and what you've done. That you laid aside glory and splendor to come to this broken, fallen world to get messy. That you who were so high and lifted up went down so low to to die on a cross.
And so as we reflect on that, Lord, I pray that we would be filled with amazement and awe, that we would love you all the more, that we would enter into Christmas season not being bogged down by all the nonsense that can accompany that, but as Christians, we would celebrate this holiday differently in joy, in celebration, in awe, in reverence, and right now, especially gratitude, that we would be thankful that you laid it all down on the line in order that you might save us and adopt us into your family. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.